Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. There's something about what she sparked in me when I was a child. She was just so cool, as far as I was concerned, as this nerdy, ugly nine-year-old. And there was this woman with this bright orange and red hair, jumping up and down, wearing this kind of warrior dress and we you know with bits of metal and she was so opposite to that kind of male gaze female pop star that we were so used to seeing so actually seeing that depiction of homosexuality on my tv was a kind of life-changing moment it's something which I kind of hold with great pride that I am actually in a Derek Jarman movie. But when I told her I was gay, when I first came out to her, her words to me were, well, I expect you'll get AIDS and die then. My guest today is someone I've known for 30 years. Matthew Hodson is executive director of the international HIV information charity AIDSMAP and former chief executive of the activist charity Gay Men Fighting AIDS. He first got involved in the gay rights movement when he was at university in the late 80s, as Section 28 was making its way into law. He trained as an actor and performed in shows by queer theatre companies, Homo Promos and the AIDS Positive Underground Theatre Company. He also made brief appearances in Derek Jarman's Edward II and opposite Derek Jacobi in the film of Breaking the Code. More recently, he appeared in the Chemsex monologues and the web series, The Grass is Always Grinder. Matthew shares HIV information, stories about LGBTQ history and excessive amounts of gym selfies on social media, which earned him the title of Social CEO of the Year. I know that you're familiar with the podcast, you know the drill. So who is the first person that you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen this particular person? Well, when I was invited to be on this, obviously, I think like anyone who is invited to be on a podcast called We Can Be Heroes, you think, well, what, what, who are my heroes and, and why are they my heroes? And as I was reflecting on that, I was kind of thinking, well, there's heroes who are people who are icons and idols, um, the people that we love, that we feel that we're instinctively drawn to. And then there are heroes who do very brave, courageous acts and there are heroes who saved the day, possibly through brave and courageous acts. And they're all slightly different kind of different ways of thinking about heroes. And there's also superheroes, sometimes with special powers as well. And I was very keen on those when I was a kid. But I think that among my friends, I think there's a person who, if they were to, if they were asked, well, you know, who's Matthew's hero? I think 
I just know that all of my friends, if they are watching a Jodie Foster film, they think of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say that the first person I really thought of was Jodie Foster. And 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 it's an odd one because I think there's a, a certain respect where it's not that I think that she's done anything incredibly courageous. I mean, she has done courageous things in her life, just as many of us have done. But, you know, it's not just about what she's achieved is something about what she sparked in me when I was a child. And I think that is also a part of what we look for in our heroes as children and as adults. We we send signals out into the world and sometimes it gets bounced back to us. And that's when you kind of imprint. And I think with Jodie Foster, who is five years older than me, but five years when you're nine or 10 feels like a lot. And that was when I first kind of became aware of Jodie Foster. And I was this, I mean, obscenely ugly child with terrible teeth and a homemade haircut. I was incredibly unpopular and and quite bullied at school. But part of that was because I was quite academically gifted. That didn't make you popular. You were popular if you were good at sports, and I was terrible at sports. And then I became aware of Jodie Foster because she was, you know, she was a big star. She was in Taxi Driver and Bugsy Malone and The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, all in the same year at the Cannes Film Festival. And she got the Oscar nomination for Taxi Driver, which, of course, I was too young to see. But I watched Bugsy Malone. How old were you when you saw Bugsy Malone? I must have been nine. I saw it at the cinema when it came out. I think that was probably the first Jodie Foster film I saw at the cinema. But she was doing all those Disney films at the time. So she did that and she did Freaky, Freaky Friday. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, imagining how fun it would be to be grown up and Candle Shoe, you know, all those kind of films. And they're all a bit, you know, you watch them now and they're a bit, they're a bit formulaic. But there was something about her and about how she came across in interviews where she was like, she was just so cool as far as I was concerned as this nerdy, ugly nine-year-old. But she was also really smart. And I think for me, when I was being bullied and feeling very isolated and alone, to see this person who was young, although she seemed old to me at the time, but she was definitely, she was a child and she was cool, but she was clever. And I that was what I needed at that time. It's weird because you know I was so young and she was so young and you know all of our lives were ahead of us and I had no idea that she would go on to win two Oscars kind of thing but it's that thing where it was like she was imprinted on me I'm not big into sports I'm not really into sports at all I always find it a bit odd that people support a football team because it's like well you're not supporting the players it's not like they put out a brilliant single they're not Mariah Carey and you go oh I love her voice and so therefore I'm going to follow her and the players change. And I, I always found that a bit odd. And yet I follow Jodie Foster like a lot of people follow a football team. I want her to win. I want her to be good. And I think she is good. I think she's incredibly talented. But there's that feeling of like, she's my actor. And I think there's also that thing that she was queer. And I don't know whether as a nine-year-old, I picked up on something in the way that she conducted herself in interviews which kind of said, I'm not interested in this kind of heteronormative 
world which people assume that I will be a part of and there's a very famous clip of her being asked about boyfriends when she's yeah, I've seen that probably clip. 14 or something like that yeah. and she kind of pulls her face and she says I'm just not really interested in that and I don't know I, I just sometimes wonder because I felt like I, I knew that she was a lesbian like a long time before she announced it at the Golden Globes and she was kind of open about it she was just I'm not going to talk about it. I guess very young generation now barely know who she is. People perhaps who were born in the 80s might kind of have kind of wondered why it took her so long to come out to actually make that public declaration. Look, I'm I'm gay. I, I have a woman partner. We have children together. We are a family. It would have been career suicide for her in the 80s and 90s when she was making those Oscar-winning movies. She didn't do that huge, courageous thing, which would have been astonishing, like Ellen, for all her faults, did do. But also you have to remember that Ellen sitcom got cancelled after she came out. It lasted one more season and then it got cancelled. And for years she barely worked. And then she got the chat show gig and everything that followed that. We're still not where we should be in terms of having out LGBTQ+, actors they can be supporting characters but if you look at the career of someone like luke evans who has the voice of an angel he's a beautiful beautiful to look at he's a great singer and he isn't in as many hollywood musicals as james corden so what the hell's going on there i used to hang out with luke a bit back in the day when he was doing taboo and doing west end musical shows and he was very very out and very outspoken I interviewed him for Time Out, I think, actually, at one point. And then when he went to Hollywood, there was clearly pressure put on him to pipe down. I suspect, I mean, obviously, I don't have the evidence for this. I suspect it's limited what he gets offered. And he's he's now at a place, you know, he's releasing albums as well. And he was, he was in the live action Beauty and the Beast, which is one of the biggest grosses of all time. You know, I mean, he's got box office heft behind him. But I think there's still that reluctance from Hollywood studios to put a lot of money into a film which stars someone who is openly gay. And I think that Jodie Foster, it's it is terrible, but I don't think she would have had the career she had if she, she had was been targeted. She was targeted by the outing campaign in sort of 80s going into the 90s, wasn't she? She was one of the people targeted. I think it was in particular in relation to Science of the Lambs. I mean, I love it and I have trans friends who, who, who also love it, but obviously... There is that challenging element of it that the villain of the piece is someone who thinks that they're trans. And the film does kind of does say they're not trans, but they think that they're trans. That distinction is quite quite easy to miss. And I guess it does fall into that quite astonishingly large category of films which feature trans serial killers. Dress to Kill is obviously a big one but also the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can't deny how well made the film is. I think they would make it differently now. I think they would be, I think there's a different sensitivity now towards that. I can't recall who said it, but in Disclosure, the documentary Disclosure about trans representation, one of the contributors talks about, I think it's Dressed to Kill they're talking about, and they say that watching that film, they weren't bothered remotely by the trans inverted commas character because they were identifying really strongly with their female character angie dickinson 
in science of finance, it does have the line, we know that the killer isn't trans because trans people are very passive. And my trans, that's the line my trans friends object to. <laughs> like, how dare you say we're passive? We're active agents in our own destiny. It's interesting that the focus came on Foster because the director went on to direct Philadelphia. She got targeted, whereas Jonathan Demme just went ahead and made the first big AIDS movie in Hollywood. Yeah, and I think Jonathan Demme made that first big AIDS movie in Hollywood in part because of the protest against Science of the Lambs because he felt he owed us one. I think Jodie Foster <laughs> is a very, very good person to have as a hero. And I was also quite obsessed with her as a small kid. I remember seeing Bugsy Malone and Freaky Friday as a kid. I think it was because in those days there was that whole thing about tomboys and she was clearly a tomboy. And many of my girl friends as a small boy were tomboys, some of whom have turned out to be lesbians. And I saw her as a kind of tomboy. She was strong. People say, oh, when did you know that you were gay? And and I think kind of knowing you're gay is, is so weird. And I think especially perhaps for people of our generation where there were so few role models or public discussion of it. So I think it's more that I look back on parts of my biography or parts of the way that I've th- thought or felt and retrospectively I go oh that's clearly gay you grow and you learn and then you realize what bits were so I think that attraction to the tomboyish Jodie Foster was definitely a part of that signal I'll go on to the next person who I was going to mention who is the next person let's segue nicely in with barely a flutter of the eyelids I'll move on to (laughs) Toya Wilcox I don't know how much I want to talk about her but I mean you know she definitely was, when I first saw her, which was on Top of the Pops, singing It's a Mystery, the first time she appeared on Top of the Pops. And there was this woman with this bright orange and red hair, jumping up and down, wearing this warrior dress and you know, with bits of metal. And she was so opposite to that kind of male gaze, female pop star that we were so used to seeing. She wasn't trying to be a man in a way that maybe Susie Quattro or someone like that was kind of mannish in her mannerisms. And she wasn't, I guess, kind of Kim Wilde, although she came a little bit later, was was very much the kind of, you know, stereotypical blonde, big eyes. She wasn't far removed from the very conventional fantasy of, you know, womanhood at the time, heterosexual fantasy of womanhood. And even Kate Bush, who obviously is weird and wonderful and is, you know, has musically probably endured for me much more than Toya has. I almost feel like with Kate Bush that perhaps the fact that she was so beautiful distracted us from how incredibly talented and what a genius she was. But that first time I saw Toya, there was something that spoke to me as a 12, 13 year old. And it's weird because I still do go to see Toya in concert and I see all those people who were 12 or 13 or even the slightly cooler ones who knew about her before she ever appeared on Top of the Pops. And so many of them are part of our LGBTQ plus community. I think that it wasn't just me that kind of got a bit of a signal. It wasn't just you. I still have that EP. I still have that seven. Four from Toya. Yeah, four from Toya. And I still remember all the, diff- the different makeups on the back. I used to try and copy the makeups and try and do my face like that. <laughs> do you and have a- the pictures? I want to see these. Yeah, there were, and there was a documentary that was shown at the time. I think it was called Toya, Toya, Toya after the live album. 
And I remember watching it with my parents and my mum being appalled because she was so crude and rude. And I thought that was fantastic that she was so crude and rude. <laughs> Sticking her tongue out. There was a very notorious photograph of her with a nipple hanging out, painted black. She said about that, she said um, that the photographer said, oh, well, why don't you do a sexy photo? And she said, well, I don't do sexy photos. If I did a sexy photo, it would be like this and painted her oh. nipple black. So it was her absolutely kind of, wanting making it almost making a statement about the kind of you know the page three girls and the dolly birds and the, the kind of submissive sexuality that was imposed upon women at the time but then of course you know the sun then ran it on page three of course yeah. so um perhaps that wasn't as successful as she might have hoped i saw her would have been 1981 i think at cardiff top rank suite and with my friend dean and we were also into hazel o'connor who we'd also seen at Cardiff top rank suite and that of course posed a problem because you were meant to be on one side or the other of that whole Toya versus Hazel O'Connor row that raged during 1981. I do <laughs> wonder how, how much those those arguments were real because I mean obviously Toya and Hazel O'Connor now definitely are friends they they toured together recently and um, Hazel's not been well and yeah. Toya has been supportive um so they're definitely friends now. And I, I recall a photo from 1981, which was at the British Rock and Pop Awards, what what then became the Brits later, um, where Toya won Best Best Woman Singer, Best Female Singer, um, and Hazel O'Connor and Kim Wilde were nominated, and it was a great triumphant night for us Toya fans. But, you know, clearly in the photo that I saw of them, they're laughing together. And you know how it is. You read these stories in the paper, and you think, well, how much is that the paper trying to stir things up? And it's something which we see particularly with women. But it seems to be part of the narrative that we have about women is that women can't be friends with each other and they can't support each other. Maybe it's a kind of patriarchal desire to keep women down by turning them against each other. They did compete for the same role in Breaking Glass and Hazel won that one. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was, what, 15, I think, when I was into Toya, when I first got into Toya. And I got mocked mercilessly because it was all my friends were into kind of new romantics and Visage and and uh, Human League, which I was also into as well. But apparently at that time in Bridgend in South Wales, Toya was for your little sister to like, not for you to like. You know, if you were into those other bands, you couldn't be into Toya as well. <laughs> it's a lonely path to tread being a Toya fan sometimes. <laughs> um, an exotic path. An exotic <laughs> path. But I, th th there's definitely bits. There are bits from her record history. There's a song called Bird in Flight, which is about teen suicide. Um and you know it's actually i mean it's it's vigorous and exciting and 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 you know kind of wonderful guitar breaks and stuff like that but it's also actually when you listen to the lyrics and when you kind of understand what the lyrics are about which it took me a long time to do i think i was in my 30s before i actually realized what it was about um and then you kind of go well actually that's that's pretty poetic and beautiful and to be honest, I actually only found out what it was about because she said that she was reluctant to sing it in concert because it was about teen suicide from the point of view of a teen who commits suicide successfully. 
And she was like, well, you know, am I glamorizing suicide by singing this song? And she found a way of delivering it, which kind of worked around it and where the protagonist didn't die, which made her feel comfortable with it. There's a lot of stuff in her, I mean, for me, particularly amongst the first couple of albums, which I think is really underrated and kind of got lost because she kind of became perceived as being very commercial. And I think as a person, she is, she's, she's nice and sweet and kind. And, 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 you know, despite what your mother saw in that documentary, I think perhaps it's almost her eagerness to please, which made her somehow unfashionable. There's the letter which Shirley Manson from Garbage wrote to her, apologising for not standing up for her. She said, uh, Shirley Manson said, you know, you actually were a huge influence to me. You were, you were my idol. And I can, you know, looked at your hair and I looked at your makeup and I wanted to copy it and I wanted to be you. Um, and then when I kind of got into my own rock band and, you know, became a cool kid and we had all our hits, I never thanked you because you weren't cool. And I feel bad about that. I should have thanked you. I should have honoured you. And quite often, I think, you know, we talked a bit about kind of how female artists were set against each other. I think it's quite hard now in the 2020s to remember quite how odd it was to have women who, A, weren't the object of that standard heterosexual, heteronormative desire, but also women who wrote their own songs, who were their own creative forces. But those women who did do that, I mean, you know, we think of Patti Smith, we think of the goddess who is Kate Bush, um, we think of Hazel O'Connor. I think we often ignore Toya, but she came at that pivotal moment where when she got married, they expected her husband to be part of her record contract. And she was like, well, I've been a recording artist for the last you know, however many years at that point and had, you know, numerous, you know, gold, silver discs under her belt. And they still thought that, that you know, that her husband needs to be a part of her record contract. You know, that, that, that sexism, she was a part of the, what broke it down. It still exists. But, you know, those women were pioneers in a way which I think is, it's hard to imagine now. And I think the Toya's contribution to that is often overlooked. I was mocked for being a Toya fan when I was a kid, as I was saying. And then years later, when I was in London and I'd come out and I got very into Derek Jarman's films, and then I felt completely, um, what's the word, not redeemed. Um, exonerated. I felt completely exonerated. That is the word, because <laughs> she was a queer icon and Derek knew <laughs> because he'd used her in these films, which I hadn't known at the time. I think Toya is a very, very worthy person to be included in this Hall of Fame for all the reasons that we've talked about. During lockdown, she and Robert had such a great lockdown <laughs> with those fabulous, fabulously funny streams that they did. I mean, they were just so fantastic. I mean, she is completely balmy um, and and you've got to love her for it. Who is the next person you'd like to talk about? Well, he, he's come up already. Um, and actually, I was just going to talk about Toya as a kind of a gateway drug to Derek Jarman, um, because I was introduced to Derek Jarman because of Toya. I knew that she had been in two of his films, and so I sought them out, which were, of course, uh, The Tempest, the Jarman retelling of 
the Shakespeare play in which Toya played Miranda, where of course she has the line, oh, what brave, what brave new world is this that has such people in it, which then of course is also the title of one of her big hits, Brave New World. Do look it up on Spotify, it's actually one of her best ones. So I kind of saw Dope Jarman, and there, you know, you're, you're there, you're, you're like a 15, 16 year old gay boy. This was in the days before video and let alone DVD, let alone streaming. And so you would only see a film if it was at the cinema or if it was on television. And Channel 4 did this late night showing season of controversial movies. And they included several of Derek Jarman's films. So I got to see not only Jubilee, but also Sebastiani, which was a Latin telling of the story of the martyred gay iconic saint, Sebastian. It opens with Lindsay Kemp doing a dance routine, at the end of which he is sprayed with bucket loads of cum. I suspect not real, but um, you know, visually that's what happens. Um, and then there's nudity and erections and lots and lots of gay sex between this early Christian martyr and a Roman centurion who was blonde and very, 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 very sexy indeed. I think part of talking about the sexiness of it is back then we didn't have the internet. We couldn't kind of go, oh, you know what I'm into? I'm into six foot four hairy men. I will Google six foot four hairy men and see what comes up. So actually our exposure to images that we liked was very much dependent on what was put in front of us. You could buy a book, you could buy a magazine if you were daring enough to do so. But this was kind of difficult if you're a 15, 16 year old gay boy. So actually seeing that depiction of homosexuality on my TV was a kind of life-changing moment wasn't that 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 was what made me gay I knew I was gay well before I saw Sebastiane but it was one of the first times I'd seen gayness on screen so that's how I became aware of Derek Jarman and I went to university Uh, I went to university in 1986 at the end of 1986 was when the government's AIDS campaigns started the iceberg and tombstone campaign it was very doom ridden graphics with gravestones and an iceberg and this kind of unseen menace that was now stalking our country and also at the same time section 28 started its passage into law when i think about being gay at university and kind of in the years just after university i went to drama college in 1989 Section 28 and that homophobia and the homophobia it represented and AIDS were were the big drivers of, of the narrative. And I think I felt that we were a besieged community. 1988 was the first uh, international AIDS conference held in, in London. And Prior to that, uh, Peter Tatchell organised a sort of mini-conference for people with HIV. And Derek Jarman spoke at that in in 1987 and declared that he was living with HIV then. Now, there are more people who are coming forward about living with HIV, whether they're in the public eye or not. 
But Derek Jarman was the very first person, first British person who was in the public eye to say that they were living with HIV, if I've got that right. I mean, that that's certainly my memory of it. Rock Hudson and Freddie Mercury only were open about their HIV status right at the end of their lives. But Derek Jarman was someone who was still living, still working, still making films, still being creative. And he was open about living with HIV. And I think when we talk about heroes and we talk about acts of courage, that was an astonishing act of courage at the time. And he was truly courageous in the way that he lived his life. His art was uncompromising, but his life was uncompromising as well. So I think when you talk about heroes, for me, Derek isn't the football team type hero. He isn't that kind of idol. He's actually someone who I... The more I explore what he achieved, what he did, the level of personal courage it must have taken him to do those things, to to speak openly, to to risk arrest on outrage actions as a public figure, to not accept a caution. He was arrested on one outrage demonstration and he was offered a caution. He refused to accept it. He was like, no, no, you, you either charge me or you release me. And they released him for someone who was trying to get work in a homophobic environment, in a homophobic funding environment. And also getting films made and getting insured, um, yeah. that would have also been an issue for him. Well, it was an issue for him. When he took part in those outrage demonstrations, there was the famous kissing beneath Eros. And he was photographed in The Guardian kissing somebody. And the caption was kiss of death, question mark, in The Guardian. That was The Guardian. That wasn't The Daily Mail. The environment was so hostile. I've been really looking forward to doing this with you, Paul. And I think part of it is that I think for both of us, we've been shaped by those experiences. That experience of loss and of grief, but also that experience of going through all of that while the mainstream media was so cruel about us and as you say you know it was the guardian as well as the sun and the star and the news of the world you know and you know there were columns when when freddie mercury died that just said you know well we're glad that vile person is gone it released like the week of his death it wasn't universal but it was enough to make it feel that we were in a state of perpetual attack because there were people who said that our lives had no value because we were gay and people who felt that AIDS, which took so many of us at an incredibly young age, or many, many at an incredibly young age, was some way of cleaning society. It sounds like I'm being over the top, but actually that's what it was like at the time. I think that was my perception. It absolutely was like that at the time. Absolutely. I mean... I was reliving a lot of it, writing the memoir, and I went back and dug up old diaries, which I kept for a time, and then I stopped keeping them because it was too painful to keep updating them. In the same way that taking those pages from your file or those names from your notebook became too painful after a while. 
that period was incredibly, incredibly tough. And it, it did feel like we were completely under siege. Even well-meaning people that I was friends with who weren't directly affected, by which I mean friends and family members who were straight and living a very, very different life to me, didn't couldn't seem to make the leap and understand how abnormal and unreal and hard it was for a 23-year-old to be burying their friends. That is so obscene. And the fact that they couldn't make that leap of imagination for me caused so much, it caused me so much distress and it broke down so many relationships that I had at the time because I just couldn't cope with it. If, if they could not make the leap of imagination to try and understand what I was going through, the cognitive dissonance around that was so difficult to cope with. My mother, who is no longer alive, in her later life, she became a you know, kind of really powerful LGBTQ rights activist, uh, particularly within the Church of England, which she was she was a very staunch believer, and she wanted to turn around attitudes within the church towards LGBTQ plus people. Um, you know, so I, I tell this story within that context. But when I told her I was gay, when I first came out to her, her words to me were. Well, I expect you'll get AIDS and die then. And that was coming from someone who was kind of, you know, liberal and caring and had gay friends. You know, I mean, this that was that was kind of that was the nicer side of the picture. So, you know, imagine what the harsher side of the picture is. And, you know, those families where they've discovered that their their son or their brother was gay at the same time as they discovered that the son of the brother was, was dying of AIDS. Because, because people didn't talk about their sexuality back then. And then they had to, they were forced out of the closet because AIDS forced them out of the closet. And some families responded well and some families responded horrifically. And that was the context in which you had this filmmaker, this arty, queer filmmaker making these uncompromising films and... And also taking compromising stances around his own sexuality and how he behaved. Those defiant pieces he wrote and speeches he made about Hampstead Heath and the way that he celebrated his sexuality at a time when people who were out about being HIV positive, they were expected to be non-sexual almost. I worked in HIV prevention for many years. I now work in HIV information. There is a distinction between the two. But... That idea that someone would receive an HIV diagnosis and then stop having sex was so prevalent in so much public health work, especially government public health work, you know, that you'd see these campaigns and they would be targeted solely towards people who are HIV negative because the idea was, well, it's all about protecting yourself. And it's like, well, actually, people who live with HIV have emotional needs as well. Maybe considering there's someone living with HIV in every single transmission of HIV, maybe include them in your public health campaigns. Maybe think about how you can support them, how you can help them to have sex without the risk of transmission. Because, you know, it's not like you you get your HIV diagnosis and then a condom magically appears on the end of your penis and stays fixed there for the rest of your life. <laughs> You ended up appearing in one of Dirk Jarman's films, didn't you? I did. Yes. So one of the things about being gay in the 90s is it was a smaller scene. I had just left drama college. 
I was such a pretentious, wanky actor. I didn't think I wanted to be in soap. So I wanted to just make kind of works of extraordinary, heartbreaking beauty and, and glory. And I was in Compton and Derek Jarman was there. And I was like, oh my God, it's that guy who directed Toya. <laughs> and he was with someone who thought that I was cute. So I was invited to, to join their group and we were chatting. And he said, my next project is... Uh, a movie of Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. My father was actually a huge Christopher Marlowe fan. So actually I knew, like, I, I, I know a little bit about this. And so we kind of talked about it and he said, oh, well, would you like to come and audition for me? And I gave the worst audition probably <laughs> in all of human history. <laughs> Because I was so nervous and excited and I panicked. My toes are curling now as I talk about it. You know, we went for lunch afterwards. I, I, I think in Old Compton Street, I think we're in the Stockpot or someplace like that. One of those kind of, kind of quite cheap little restaurants. He was always in, in there. Yeah. So we had lunch together and, you know, we chatted and, you know, we talked about his career and all of those things. And, you know, I left that thinking, well, I've, I've had lunch with Derek Jarman and that's that that's great. Um, and, you know, maybe my dreams of ever being in a Derek Jarman film are dead, but I've had lunch with Derek Jarman. And then he decided that for his film of Edward II, which was about the homophobic persecution of the King of England, uh, he wanted to really make explicit the parallels between the homophobia that we were experiencing then in the early 90s. Um, and so he asked whether uh, members of Outrage would be extras for a riot scene in his movie. And I was a member of Outrage. I called him and said, I've been invited to come and be an extra. Is that OK? And he was like, it would be delightful to see you. If you watch the movie, I am there. I am kettled by the police in, in, in one sequence. And uh, I sit there cuddling a very hot activist in another scene. I've got to say, I, mean, I think my uh, acting career hasn't quite achieved the heights which I had hoped for, but it's something which I kind of hold with great pride that I am actually in a Derek Jarman movie. I wanted to ask you how this has felt for you. Um, I love that having that opportunity to record those bits of our history, which happened before the internet, uh, before before everything was recorded. I mean, there's one other person. He's such a hero. He's humble with it. He hates it when people call him this. But I have to mention him. I have to mention Peter Tatchell, who obviously is also connected with Derek Jarman. He was also part of Outrage and ACT UP and part of the Gay Liberation Front. And when we talk about people who are heroic, who do courageous things, he is one of those people. He has influenced me in my life and in my work and in the way I deliver my work and in the way I communicate. It's not to say that we agree on everything or anything like that, but he's a lovely person. And I think what the history books will record is his role in changing some of the legislation. I think that was that pincer movement between Stonewall, who kind of said, you can talk to us, we will appear with briefcases and suits, mm. and Outrage and Act Up, who said, if you don't do something, 
we will watch you and we will disrupt your lives to the extent that you know you need to do something. And that pincer movement worked. And that's yeah. why we now enjoy the equalities legislation, which has changed the lives of millions of people in the UK and even beyond. And we've got to thank Peter Tatchell, because when he was doing it, he not only was he hated on by straight society, he was hated on by a lot of queer society as well, because people thought, stop making a fuss, stop drawing attention, yeah. stop being disruptive. But we needed that disruption to make change. It's been lovely to do this, and it's been lovely to think about heroes. I think the heroes that I have are people who I've seen something in them which reflects something in myself. You know, and I'm not saying I'm comparable to them, but they've inspired me. They've pushed me forward. They've they've helped shape me as a person. We all have that spark in us. We all have that ability to change the world, to make the world a better place. And and actually, when you think about Bowie and him saying we can be heroes just for one day. And it's like, this is the beautiful way of rebutting Andy Warhol's we'll all be famous for 15 minutes. We can all be famous for 15 minutes, but how about if we're heroes for a day? Perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you. It's really lovely to speak with you. It was really nice of you to ask me to do this. Um, thank you. My thanks to Matthew for being such a great guest. And you can find out more about him and his work by following him on Twitter at Matthew underscore Hodson or Instagram at Matthew Hodson London. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. Hello, this is Ty Jeffries, also known as Miss Hope Springs. And I'm on Paul Burston's We Can Be Heroes. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.